Oh my goodness! So yeah, irritating. Yeah. But yep, anyway, that's, uh, well, we know who's behind it. Yeah. Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting across North America and right there on your podcast apps. We're just going to throw right into it. I'm one half of your host, Yael Lasowski, broadcasting from Vienna, Austria, in the middle of the, the city here in Dubling, in the Dubling studio. And I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, David Clement. David, how goes it, good man? You sound like you're pumped up. I'm pretty angry. I am well, uh, I'm what's, pretty, uh, what's grinding your gears this fine day? angry <sighs> all right so you know how i went to albany um to testify in favor of direct-to-consumer sales for electric vehicles i have was... heard such a rumor yes yeah so when i was there the dealers association they they're they are fighting against this because they want all cars to be sold via dealerships no other models and one of their claims was that they are the advocates for consumers in regards to warranty issues. And lo and behold, I am now a case study in my own argument against the dealers. And so we recently, in May of 2021, bought a new car. We have a warranty. The warranty actually includes the tires, which is very nice. Or at least I thought. Um, so basically, if you have <laughs> a puncture going. <laughs> or something along those lines, um, essentially what it says is if uh, if there's like a hole, a puncture, or a break um, that's like within the routine driving of the vehicle, um, they have to repair it or replace it. So we were driving home from Toronto. Woke up the next day, we had a flat tire, I changed the tire, I drove the car to the dealership, I got them to, uh, to change When you say you changed the tire, did you put on a donut or do you have a yeah, spare? Yeah, I put on the donut, drove it to the dealership, I get there, I'm like, hey guys, this is under warranty, etc., etc., and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, no problem, you do have to pay up front, and then we have a check for you uh, once that's approved. So that was about a month ago. So I wait like two weeks after the repair, and I phone and leave a voicemail. This is Oakville Hyundai, everybody. Um, leave a voicemail, leave, leave another voicemail, leave another voicemail. I go there in person, and the people in financing are not there, so no one can help me or whatever it was. So finally, I call back today, and I get through to someone, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry about that. Let me look up the claim. And they're like, oh, yeah, your claim was denied. Uh, oh, what do you mean it was denied? There was a hole in the tire. Like, I didn't crash the car. It wasn't slashed. There's a hole in the tire. And I brought it to you. And they're like, oh, yeah, we don't know. And I'm like, okay, well, can we escalate this? Can we, can we like, do something else? Can we resubmit the claim? And they're like, no, 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 we can't. We can't do that. And so after spending eight hours listening to the Dealers Association talk about how they are such great advocates for consumers and defending their warranty. Here is Oakville Hyundai basically telling me I'm blank out of luck. Um, obviously, because they filed something incorrectly or misworded 
what had happened in regards to the flat tire because there was nothing exceptional about it. And so now I'm stuck fighting with the dealership over resubmitting the claim and what happens next. And the whole thing is just such a farce. Such a farce. And yeah, I'm super, super, Hmm. super angry about it. And it just makes me like, not that the tires made the, like was a reason why I bought the warranty, but based on the wording of the warranty, I mean, you factor that in, let's say the warranty of, total for the life of the car is 3000 Well, I mean, one tire and getting it changed is like 500 bucks. So that's like a significant portion of Whoa. the value of the warranty. And so I'm waiting for a check. They're telling me that there's no check coming. And now I'm kind of left trying to figure out what to do. And yeah, I'm very disappointed. I'm very, very disappointed. And I've become a strange world out there. I've become a case study in my own argument. So now I can Well, I think this is uh it's a good moment for some consumer education on warranties, which again, I've only ever purchased a car from a dealership uh used. So I'm not uh I'm not in the Clement cl- uh, camp there. <laughs> uh, only just recently and I was presented with the warranty, same deal. And I was just like, well, what does this actually cover? And they're like, well, you know, anytime you got something that's wrong, we'll cover it. I'm like, what does that mean? I blow my engine, you cover it? Because, like, that's a lot of money. <laughs> like, if I blow a transmission, and like, oh, we'll have to get back to you. And I'm like, all right, can you send the, the fine print? And, of course, the fine print never arrives. It's essentially exactly like normal insurance. Uh, you know, I recently took out life insurance, and I make sure that I have every single word that's put down on the document. Um, yeah, I, I think this is just another example of um, getting fleeced. And, you know, maybe when a lot of these warranties are written up or they're offered to consumers, it's with the best of intentions, but the dealerships have every incentive to make you pay and not honor the warranty. Yeah, and this, this is bogus. I mean, it literally says... Tire road hazard protection, tire repair or replacement due to a failure caused by a puncture, a cut, a bruise, or impact break occurred or incurred during normal driving activity. So, what are they Ooh, implying but, that but, I went like off roading or like? Oh yeah, I'm, yeah. They maybe they've got this internal sensor and they saw that you you hit you know 105 kilometers. So you're over the limit, bud. <laughs> That would yeah, actually be lock. hilarious. <laughs> it's always it's always something like that to where you're out of policy. I had this recently with Google Fi, uh, which otherwise I'd recommend it as an amazing uh, mobile cell phone service that gets you unlimited internet basically anywhere in the world except Cuba, which I learned the hard way. <laughs> um, <laughs> but with this plan, it's great and all is good, but then they tell you in the fine print later, oh, you must spend you know six months out of the year in the U.S., and of course, I'm not, and I've been abroad, and I get an email telling me, oh, yeah, we're cutting off the uh, limited internet, sorry. Not the biggest of deal, because we have a very competitive market uh, in Austria when it comes to cell phones and data, and pretty cheap, but still, this other thing of the fine print, and a lot of, I, you know, David, it's kind of, it's funny, we get emails all the time at Consumer Choice Center uh, from people who got screwed over with some purchase of a product, you know, they've been trying to reach customer service, they're not able to, 
Uh, they reach out to us for some reason. You know, that's not really our bread and butter, but we do get these emails from time to time or voicemails. Uh, it's like, can you go after these people? Like, well, I'd love to, but, you know, there's a lot of scammers out there. There are a lot of bad contracts, and these are circumstances in which consumers are not really being favored. And there's a lot of bad incentives at play. There's a lot of government regulations that make it so, uh, you know, that they have to, you know, offer a particular thing. And of course, they're not going to follow through. But yeah, it comes down to, to the consumer education and fighting for your fighting for your rights. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just drives me bananas, this nonsense. And the, the worst part is, is that they had me pay up front. That yeah, and that's me. always that's always suspect because basically you're going back to the same dealership where you got the car too, right? Correct. And this is the, the second same. car that I've purchased from there. My family has bought cars since the dealership opened. Loyal in the 90s. customer. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I should have said no to paying up front to create an incentive for them to put the work in to ensure that I that they honor the warranty because there's no incentive for them now. It doesn't matter. They've already got paid. Oh, yeah. They got the money. Oh, my goodness. So yeah, irritating. Yeah. But yep, anyway. Uh, well, we know who's behind it. <laughs> yeah, well, um, you know, with that, I, I think there's, yeah, there's so many tales. And, and, you know, we do a consumer corner every now and then on this program. Uh, you guys who are listening and uh are either listening on the radio or have subscribed to the podcast, know that there are great services that we will recommend. Uh, but I think we'll probably have to open up, you know, another segment of services we don't recommend. And yep. with these warranties, you know, often I see, and this is going to sound very sexist, but it's true, at least in my dealings, uh, they will target the wife or the woman to get her this deal so that she signs. Like while you're out of the room, <laughs> so <laughs> that's actually very what? common. It's a very common. So Carvana, the direct to consumer. So in the U.S., you're allowed to send cars direct to the consumer if they're used. Um, and Carvana basically ran an ad targeting females, saying, "Hey, we know the experience when you go into a dealership is bogus because all of these biases and prejudices come into play." Why don't you just skip all that and go through us? And I was like, well, that's actually a very good argument because this is definitely true. Um, I think the ad is a woman going in and asking for information about an F-150 and the guy kind of laughs at her and he's like, no, 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 I think what you really want and all this weird stuff, which I'm sure exists all the time. Uh, I have to go back and find, I think, the greatest commercial of all time, uh, which has a NASCAR tie-in. Oh, uh, by the way, yes, there's, I... there's a great there's a great article in American Conservative on NASCAR, and uh, it's it's failing. So we can talk about that later. Uh, but in the ad, you just see this guy who's apparently the mechanic or at the dealership with his wife, and he's like, you know, it's just every time I want to go somewhere, it's just constant whining, whining when I want to go bowling, whining when I want to go to the game, and then it cuts to uh, Jimmy Fenning, who's like a crew chief for Mark Martin back, and then he goes. Sounds like you need a new fan belt. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I do remember that one. I do remember that one. Yeah, it even crossed your radar. So, uh, yeah, speaking of, of uh, the NASCAR thing, I just think it's interesting because uh, we are in the outrage uh, politics moment, 
And uh, there is an article by apparently a fellow who's from the same town I am, uh, also from from my town of Concord in North Carolina, and wrote a piece on um, basically the downfall of NASCAR. And uh, there are different arguments people can make. You know, the North Carolina audience would be very familiar. Uh, But he tied it to wokeness in sports. I don't yeah. necessarily agree with that. I think there's been, you know, some some marketing fulpas and uh, mistakes, and I think realistically, they just haven't done enough. If we look at F1, F1 came out of nowhere to become a North American favorite because of a Netflix show. Yep. NASCAR could do that easily. There's just as much drama. There's actually fighting. Uh, these guys are not all multimillionaires with their jets. It's still a lot of you know, good old Southern boys. And there's some serious, like, rivalries they could play off of and showing, like, the different teams and the different owners and who doesn't like who and why and what the history is. Like, it could be, there could be some good drama in there. Oh, yeah, and, like, particularly with the crew members, and, of course, that's what I'm familiar with because that's what, you know, my brother does, is in the crew you've got, you know, like, former NFL stars and, like, guys from other sports and people are coming in and learning about NASCAR for the first time and then you go to a couple races like Atlanta and it's like the entire uh, spectator, you know, audience pulse, you know, maybe 20% white. And that's not what you normally hear about NASCAR. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> something's happening there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Netflix, um, if you had this stock, by the way, David, I don't know if you oh, ever did. I never did. Thank, thank oh, goodness, goodness that I, uh, yeah, wow. This what thing tanked. and Shattered. And I think there's there's obviously there's a lot of analysis that's happening. I, I think it just has to do with so many other subscription services that are out there and general fatigue and people just using these other things and realizing that, you know, probably Netflix is too expensive at the end of the month. Yeah, I think it's being price sensitive, other alternatives, people getting back to doing things. Right. Oh yeah. So like, can't ride we, the pandemic wave forever. Yeah, we were Netflix heavy for a long time because there was nothing else to do, and now people are doing things, and there's all sorts of other um, activities that can take up the attention, your attention span, while you would otherwise be watching any streaming platform for that matter. Um, and then there's also, yeah, I mean, we got to go to commercial shortly, but we'll have to pick this up. Um, after our interview, the the collapse of CNN Plus. Oh, yeah. Tell us about our interview coming up. Uh, that's a segment two, delving into yep. Canadian politics. We have a conservative member of parliament and cons- uh, conservative party leadership candidate, Scott Aitchison. We talk about the race, we talk about supply management, and we talk about building some more homes. Great. We'll be right back after this. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, I have the pleasure of introducing uh, our next guest, his first appearance on the show. Um, he is the conservative leadership candidate, Scott Aitchison. Uh Thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So you have put your name into the ring um, for... Uh, conservative leader, what was driving you to put your name forward? I know it's quite a feat. It is it is a, a onerous process. 
um, what was it that drove you to want to uh, lead the party and then ultimately um, become prime minister? Well, I got to tell you, since getting to Ottawa, uh, I I was elected in the class of 2019 after a, you know, pretty long stint in municipal politics. I was first elected when I was 21 years old to my local town council. Of course, it was Huntsville. So it was a part-time gig. I had to work real jobs at the same time as well. And, uh, but the last five years before getting elected federally, I was the mayor of Huntsville. And, uh, you know, I, I led a really pretty cohesive community and, and, uh, and, and a pretty engaged council. Uh, and, and my experience when I got to Ottawa was that, uh, I, I guess, you know, my assessment was that there was an awful lot of folks in leadership positions that didn't really seem to understand leadership. I've always believed that leadership is about uh, actually engaging and empowering and inspiring the team around you to, to great things. Uh, and that, uh, you know, as a, if I was going to be the leader of the party, um, you know, that, that, that I was seeking the position of leader of a team mm-hmm. and that that team needed to be, you know, empowered. And so, uh, I, I, you know, I, it was one of those things where I think I've, I've been thinking about it all along. Wasn't necessarily thinking this time around necessarily, but, uh, but was, you know, talking to enough uh, folks in, in the conservative movements in our caucus. And we decided, you know, the kind of campaign that I would run uh, the kind of individual I am and the messages that I think are important to be talked about, um, this was a good time to do it because our politics has become so divisive, not, mm-hmm. not just within our conservative family, but really across the political spectrum. Our, our, you know, our politics is designed to divide us, to win more votes. And I, I'm, I'm really frustrated by that. And I think a lot of Canadians are. And so we said, okay, well, let's, that, you know, if you're frustrated by what's going on, you don't just sit back and hope it gets better. You roll up your sleeves and jump in and yep. uh, and demonstrate that you can do things better, do things different. Yeah, and I, I, I think that at least from what I've anecdotally seen on Twitter, that that tone or that approach that you just described seems to be very much appreciated. I've seen some describe you as the adult in the room um, in terms of your approach to politics and... Um, and praised you for two of your latest uh, policy announcements. I'll go with uh, the first one, uh, which caught my eye, which is your policy in regards to housing and what the federal government can do. Um, Walk our listeners through what you think uh, the federal government can do to help alleviate some of the housing crisis we're seeing. Yeah, happy to do so. Um, Again, reflecting on my experience as a mayor, and, and, and before I was mayor, I always chaired the planning committee. So, of course, you know, getting homes built is, uh, is very much a municipal and provincial issue, but uh, that's why, I, you know, the role for the federal government, uh, and one of the things that I always found frustrating as a mayor was dis- despite the work that we were doing locally, what all we seemed to be missing was a reliable federal partner uh, with, you know, small incentive kind of money to help, you know, get projects off the ground they just they weren't reliable uh, and so I, I you know i realize that the federal government current federal government is, has promised billions upon billions of dollars for housing uh, and yet uh, as i said before they're, they're pretty long on photo ops announcing money but pretty short on ribbon cuttings they're not getting the job done well part of the reason for that is because of you know what we call exclusionary zoning so to give you an example, in the city of Toronto as an example, which uh, I don't mean to pick on Toronto because it's an issue across the board, uh, 
Um, but in the city of Toronto, 70% of the, of, of the land, the residential lands in Toronto are zoned for single family use exclusively. So they're not, you know, you're not allowed to turn it into a duplex as of right. You're not allowed to have, you know, necessarily a, an apartment in the basement. You have to go through, you know, a fairly painful planning process with get rezoning and all those kinds of things. And, you know, you, everyone's heard of the expression NIMBYism, that's the, not in mm-hmm. my backyard. Uh, and yet, you know, if, if municipal governments uh, actually had the courage of their convictions to say, okay, we, we need more density, uh, and there are lots of ways you can, you can increase density without affecting character, which is a very important language in, in, in urban planning, but you can increase density dramatically without affecting character, uh, all kinds of places. We need we need to we need to have the courage of our convictions to get it done because there are people suffering in this country who literally don't have a place to sleep, and so you know the federal government gives billions of dollars every year to municipal governments and provincial governments uh, for infrastructure projects, whether it's huge urban transit or small rural bridges. The federal government is involved uh, with that money, and so I just said, you know, let's 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 work with all levels of government. But let's start tying that federal money to results on issues that Canadians desperately need results on. And I think housing is really the foundation of anything in life. If you don't have a warm, safe bed to sleep in, you can't expect to do anything else, really. Get a, get, you know, get an education, get a job, self-actualize in any way. We need homes. And it's a supply issue. Uh, and so we can we can, you know, yes, we can use federal money to assist with the development of uh, of affordable rentals. We definitely need more social housing and supportive mm-hmm. housing in this country. We can we can give money directly for those kinds of projects, but we need to tie, you know, the, the big federal bucks to getting results. And so I understand the system well enough. Um, I've been in it well long enough in the municipal sector mm-hmm. that I know as a federal as a federal leader and a prime minister um, I know that there are ways we can tie that. I, I just think it's it's a smarter use of uh, of all taxpayer dollars, and uh, having us all work together. We need results. That's all it comes yeah. down to. And you know, it's not it's not we're not getting results now. Yeah, yeah, it's very much the the current system has failed uh, for a variety of reasons, and so um, why not incentivize that um, by tying those funds and. Maybe have some some municipalities look at exclusion, exclusionary zoning and and um, what they can what property owners can build as of right. I think that would certainly help, um, especially on the missing middle. Um, I know right now for a lot of people who are my age, it's um, maybe you could afford a condo, maybe um, six six hundred square feet, and then outside of that, uh, you have all sorts of other housing units that are. 1 million, 1.2 million, 1.6 million. So uh, it's definitely needed. Um, on another issue, um, which I would call a sacred cow in conservative politics, pardon the pun, is supply management. And I was personally overjoyed when I saw you come out against supply management. Um, but what is your justification for ending supply management? Well, the primary justification for me is affordability for Canadians. Yeah, you know, you know, one in five Canadians live under the poverty line, and supply management makes 
basic foods like milk more expensive. A, you know, family with children, it costs them almost $600 a year more in groceries. And, and so uh, to me, it's about affordability, but it's also, you know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a kind of person who wants to pit farmers against consumers or, mm-hmm. you know, create a war. There are going to be dairy farmers that aren't happy about this because the status quo has given them stability. And I understand that. And it will take some time to unwind a 50-year-old policy. But, you know, by, by locking um, our farmers into the Canadian market and locking, you know, other countries' goods out of our markets with huge tariffs, you know, we've created a system where, yeah, we have stability in our dairy markets and our dairy farmers, but they, they can't really market their products to the world. Canada's an exporting nation. If we don't export, we don't live the life we live. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think that, you know, we have some of the best dairy farms, some of the best dairy farming practices and some of the best products in the world. Uh, and, and, and by getting out of this system that traps uh, innovative farmers into just our market, uh, we, can, we can open huge opportunities around the world. I've given the example of New Zealand, uh, which exported $17 billion worth of, worth of dairy products last year. And you know, there's 5 million people in that country. There's 38, <laughs> almost 40 million here in Canada. We exported $378 million worth of dairy products last year because mm-hmm. other countries shut us out of our market. So when you call it a sacred cow, it's, it's, a, it's a cute pun, but it's true. Um, and, and this is an example of, of what I think is just really smart policy that helps Canadians who are struggling with inflation, who are struggling with, the, you know, a carbon tax adds, you know, cost to everything you eat. Everything that you buy in a grocery store is shipped in a truck. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? They're paying more to ship that, you know, everything's costing more because of, you know, bad liberal policy for about seven years. Uh, and now inflationary pressures, which I grant you, there are some global impacts that are causing some of the inflationary pressures we're seeing. But, uh, you know, as a result of, uh, of all these policies and all these, you know, seven years of liberal, liberal rule, yep. life's getting really expensive and it's hard for families to eat. I, I can tell you, I can give you real examples in Perry Sound, Muskoka, my riding of people that I know, I know them well, who call me in tears because they're not too sure if they can afford to heat their home and eat. Like proud people have worked hard all their lives going to food banks because, and they're ashamed. Mm-hmm. That should never happen in this country. And so I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm all about helping people like that. This is, this, is, this is not a political ploy. It's not a game. This mm-hmm. is just smart policy that actually helps farmers and it makes life more affordable for the people most vulnerable in our society. And so on both, both of those policies, I think something that really echoes here is, is the reality that, that ordinary Canadians are facing, food inflation, skyrocketing housing prices, increasing rents. Do you think that maybe there has been a bit of a disconnect in Ottawa, um, over, maybe just over COVID or maybe over the last seven years in regards to what real life looks like for ordinary Canadians? Absolutely. 1000%. Honestly, Ottawa, you know, I I delivered a speech uh, in response to the government's use of the Emergency Measures Act. And I mean, I didn't talk as much about the Emergency Measures Act as other people did. But but what I pointed out in that speech is that is that we've had now decades of a political system in Ottawa that is this zero sum game about winning. Uh, and they slice and dice the electorate and they, and, and they prey upon the differences of opinion that exist 
between urban and rural and east and west and 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 you know the vaccinated and the unvaccinated mm-hmm. you, you you look at our political system it's designed to divide us our our leaders should be should be working hard to unite us and bring us together uh, and and to me that's the problem in ottawa it's about it's about winning it's about it's about you know crafting policies in such a way to know that you're going to court this group over here even if it means pissing off that group over there but they tend to vote conservative so let's do it this way I mean, honestly if i and i said this in my speech you know those of us in the house of commons that served in municipal government we all know full well we all know full well that if we behaved in local councils the way that politicians behave in ottawa we'd get our butts kicked on the main street people wouldn't put up with that mm-hmm. and ottawa needs to operate i i just think it needs some needs some small town uh, small town mayor to, to you know focus on why we're there in the first place we're there to help help people support people to 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 make canada to you know a free country with opportunity for all uh, and that's what's missing it's about winning it's not about it's not about helping canadians yeah it it feels like sometimes um it's forgotten that um the prime whomever the prime minister is is the prime minister for all canadians not just those who who voted for them um we have about 45 seconds left where can people find out more information about your leadership campaign well thank you for this opportunity and i'll i'll, I'll just say vote scott.ca nobody can spell my last name so you can see how you spell my first name behind me here vote scott.ca please come check us out we are uh in the final stages of uh, putting together all the money we need to be on the ballot and pay some bills but uh i, I think canadians are uh, are really uh it's resonating this message and my style I want to have a conversation about policy ideas that help Canadians so check us out. Great. Well, thank you again for joining us. Um those two policies have uh our our consumer uh advocates very excited and I look forward to seeing how this develops. Thanks very much. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, we just uh, wrapped up a great interview with Scott Aitchison. Um, excited to see where his uh, his leadership bid will go. Um, but I got to pick up back on on what we were chatting about before our first commercial break uh, here at EIL. So Netflix stock down, looks like a meme stock, down 25% overnight, just absolutely shattered um cnn plus lasted about a a month um something like 300 million dollars they pumped into this failed they're shutting it down uh at the end of april um so the whole streaming game is uh things are looking pretty rough (laughs) yeah it's looking rough indeed and you know it's it i have said for years it was the golden age of television we just had a mm-hmm. great number of series. We had documentaries. I mean, I turned on Netflix over the weekend, and I saw Obama hanging out in the national yeah. parks. Uh, not that I watched the whole yes. thing, but it's like, no. okay, well, you know, this thing wasn't cheap. <laughs> they put him a lot of money into this, and I know he's got his production company, and uh, he sure looks presidential. Oh, my. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, yeah this is uh, something for CNN+. Plus. You know, I never watch a second of it. Uh, I couldn't even tell you how to get it. I guess, could you have gotten it on your normal 
a cable thing or no i guess it's just like through apps no, it and was like just the tablet online. or something right yeah yeah so we we were we would have watched it through our fire stick because we were watching a lot of the cnn fire stick coverage great the... great product faster prime prime oh, now yeah incredible product um that i mean it's actually great because it it so long as the the TV has a USB C, I guess it is, out of whatever the outlet is. HDMI. Turns HDMI. any HDMI. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> HDMI. Whoops. <laughs> Turns uh, any TV into a smart TV, so long as there's Wi-Fi, and it's like, oh, that's pretty cool. Um, but I do remember we'd be watching CNN, and they were pumping these commercials out for uh, CNN Plus, and they brought Chris Wallace over from Fox, who is he's fantastic. I like him a lot. He's really good. He was supposed to be doing some program on CNN plus and like the whole thing bombed and now it's going to be shut down. It's like, Whoa, who like, apparently they had like a McKinsey and co analysis that they could get to like 15 million subscribers at some point and be profitable in the next four years. And it didn't even make four weeks. Guys, get rid of your consultants. Oh, they're not telling you the truth. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, it's this like, is not nope. the first instance. I mean, there's so many different things that we see that you know are being launched by consultants. I mean, if anything, I think this whole Russian war in Ukraine, you know, I, I think Russia hired a couple consultants and they definitely failed. So fire your consultants, <laughs> yeah. folks. Yeah, it's uh, uh, terrible, terrible. Um, yeah, and that's um, for, for that everything one. that's happening with. Um, you know, particularly information online. And I know I'm trying not to put my finger in, in the little Twitter thing again, but, you know, people are, are used, they like this instantaneous thing. I think with CNN, it's just, it's become a rotten product. And, you know, there's a lot of people who watch Fox, who watch it, I, at least whenever I would watch it, I watch it sort of ironically, just to see what's happening. It's like, oh my God, there's 4 million Americans who watch this every single night. I can't even imagine how many others around the world. And you're looking at it, but CNN is was just not tolerable. This is not real debate. These are not real issues that people are talking about or discussing. And it's a lot of condescension. And I think condescension is 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 something that a lot of particularly political and media actors don't necessarily take into account too often, but I think turns off a lot of normal working class people who would otherwise be the audience for this stuff. Well, and I think what happened was, and now the exception is their coverage in Ukraine because they actually have journalists there and they're, they're, they're doing kind of what, I don't know, in my opinion, it's like what the news is supposed to be. Um, I think during the Trump presidency, they just got too deep into the spin cycle of punditry where every interview is is a pundit and um as people who are regularly engaged in punditry there is a difference fundamental difference um between opinion it's like they failed to distinguish between the opinion pages and and the front page of a newspaper and there is a difference and the news in many senses is supposed to be um the 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 more newsy side of things. It's supposed to be what's going on, breaking news, breaking stories about things are go- that that are, that have just happened, um, as opposed to the spin cycle of opinion, 
And I mean, obviously, I think their slant, especially during the Trump presidency, was very anti-Trump, very anti-Republican, though I sympathize with those views. Um, it would just get to the point where it was nauseating. And I can understand why even if you agreed with some of those views, you'd turn the TV off. And if you didn't agree with those views, you probably never turn that channel on. I think there was a um, there's a guy that Matt Taibbi has hired for his Substack who does videos. Uh, I don't I don't oh, have yes. it at the ready, but he did a, he did a great one on the whole Mueller report thing, which yeah know, we talked about at the time and all of this and just the absolute garbage coverage of like we're waiting down to the minutes countdown clock of the Mueller report and then they read it online. It's like okay, uh, oh well, it's not as bad as I- we we're telling you for months. So, it, yeah, and it's crazy because, I mean, I've already said this in this episode, but for anyone who's listened to this program before, I'm certainly no fan of Donald Trump. But there was such a disparity between what people thought was in the report and what was actually in the report. And I you, I hear this all the time, where people will be like, oh, yeah, but, like, wasn't Trump, like, wasn't he being blackmailed by Russia over like some tape of him in a in a hotel with a escort? And it's like no, <laughs> no, like that never happened. Um, and and uh, <laughs> I'll make a quick aside. Uh, so there was the uh, debate for the uh, French president. This is the uh, oh yes, the latest debate. Macron and uh, Mac- Le Pen. Macron and Le Pen. This is for the second round. Uh, they have like a runoff system, and they have a debate. And uh, first off, great production. CNN could take some notes uh, because the way oh, they yeah. do the debate is essentially it's just time is split down the middle, and you get a free for all for you know five minutes. Say what you want. Person it's like, responds. It's more like a Lincoln Douglas debate. I think that's the right term. Where it's like two people essentially having a conversation back and forth. Yes, there's a moderator, but they're like it's. Less of the what we see now, and this is true quite a bit for Canada. Is like the the question, the non-answer, the critique of the non-answer, and then the response not responding to the critique. And it's and the like, question first off is like, how would you fix the entire crumbling medical system in thirty seconds? Please go ahead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so why why I mentioned the debate though is you know there's a lot all this innuendo around Trump and the Russians and all of this. Uh, but for, for Macron, he hit right to the point. This is probably in the first 10 minutes or so, because uh, it is on record that the Front National, whatever her party is now called, they change names every eight months, uh, but you know, took a huge loan from a Russian bank because they couldn't get any in mm-hmm. France. And uh, essentially, Macron was making the point. It's like, look, whenever you're talking about Russia, uh, you, you know, you're not talking to other political leaders. You're talking to your banker. So yeah, you have no epic. credibility, pretty, which I thought yeah, was pretty very, epic very quote. good. He, he was good. So pretty, pretty epic quote. I saw that and I was like, I, I mean, it doesn't have the same impact for me hearing it in French, but as reading the subtitles, I was like, oh, he's coming out swinging. And then he he also released that very strange photo of him on a couch with like three buttons undone and his chest hair coming out of his shirt. Oh yeah. <laughs> And I was like, okay, we're going a bit of a different angle here. I respect the uh, the chest flow he had going, but... He said, um, uh, vous ne parlez pas d'autres dirigeants. Vous parlez à votre banquier quand vous parlez de la Russie. Yeah. Uh, perfect uh, yes. French style. 
And I, I like uh, the way that the debate began, because I think it's something that we need in North America. It began with both of them basically trying to pop each other off and saying, well, I'm going to cut this tax on energy. No, no, no. I'm going to cut this tax on food. And I'm like, this is a great start. Yeah. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> yes. And of course, it descended into madness later on. Uh, but yeah, a lot of things to learn there. Yeah. I mean, imagine if we had a Canadian debate and it started with the first question open was, what taxes are you going to cut? That's exactly what it should be. And and actually, <laughs> that would be- let's speak of this a little bit, because there was an article that came out in the Globe and Mail, made the rounds. Um, sorry, let's uh, cue up Bill Maher here. Uh, okay, Bill? Putin is bad, very, very, very bad, but he's still better than the guy who brings every conversation around to Bitcoin. So the article uh, is apparently um, covering Bank of Canada research. Quote, Bitcoin investors tend to have low levels of financial literacy, according to new Bank of Canada research. Yeah, yeah. So the problem with that yeah. is that, and Pierre Polyev has been on fire with this lately, the Bank of Canada throughout the first year of the pandemic was openly saying, Guys, the problem is not inflation, it's deflation. We got to worry about deflation. There's not going to be inflation. And then inflation was transitory, and then it hit record levels. And it was like, they've lost quite a bit of credibility. And I forget, there was a headline, I have not read the article yet, but there was a headline in one of the papers that was basically saying like, the BOC has a credibility problem here. They're going to have to come to terms with the fact that they got this monstrously wrong. Um... And yeah. so when when I see another headline being like, oh, yeah, well, they think all the, the Bitcoin psychopaths are dummies. It's like, mm, maybe. Well, the quote is, uh, but maybe not. Canadians who are financially, financially literate are more likely to be aware of Bitcoin than the average Canadian, but less likely to own it. And, you know, the, the idea that, I mean, obviously, Globe and Mail is pushing this up because they know they'll get clicks and outrage. Um, but uh, if you look at, the actual numbers of household debt in Canada, talking about financial literates and, you know, no <laughs> apologies to, you know, our fellow countrymen. It's, it's basically the highest in the damn world. Oh, yeah. And uh, I think New Zealand, number two, number three. I mean, there's a thing I put out on the tweeters. Uh, Malaysia, number three. I mean, U.S. obviously is, is very high, mostly government debt. Uh, for Canada, it's mostly household debt. And I remember back in the day, the average credit card bill was around twenty four, twenty five thousand. 25000 This is years ago. And that's like yeah. per household. That's a lot. The of, average. That's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. So uh, financial that's literacy. That's a lot of money. At, and I don't fault that's people. That's a lot of money. I don't fault people, yeah, right? A lot of, that's our education system. That's you know being taught you know, how to do why equals mx plus b this kind of stuff instead of how to balance your checkbook you know i get that that's all the memes yeah i mean it's a that's a lot of money at 19.2 percent <laughs> like you're you're getting smoked very true um, very true well and also i mean the whole premise i think is silly it's like those who are more financially literate almost guarantee you scales with age and those who are more likely to invest in bitcoin would be the absolute opposite those who are mo- the most likely to invest in Bitcoin are younger. So it's not that they're buying Satoshis because they're financially illiterate. It's because they're buying they're buying Satoshis because they're younger and they understand cryptocurrencies and the interest and the excitement behind it. And 
it, I mean, there's probably a cool factor and all of that jazz. Um, not so much with someone who's 65 who gets their gets their son or daughter to reset the Wi-Fi password. Like, hey, <laughs> there's a, there's a huge gap there. So the idea that it's because people are financially illiterate is probably uh, not accurate. I very much agree, David. And uh, I know we got so much more that we could cover. Uh, we had a action-packed show, a great interview. I mean, look, we're, we're just hitting up all the great uh, Canadian political honchos, getting them on here. Um, you're hearing a lot from conservative leadership candidates. Uh, perhaps we'll have more in the future. Mm-hmm. And I know there's, there's going to be a lot more fun stuff in the weeks to come, uh, covering all kinds of things. Um, I've been trying to get a couple interviews, David, with some... Uh, some cannabis uh, farms in the states who are very against uh, what's happening with legalization on the Senate side and very against uh, sort of the Democrat-led uh, methods. Uh, so I think there's going to be some fun stuff in the weeks to come. I uh, can't wait to get back on the mic. Thank you guys for tuning in, listening, and subscribing. Thanks again for sending your sats if you are listening on a modern podcast app. David, talk to you next week. Until next week. <laughs>